0: Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. This is Lisa Goodale, and I'm your Services Director at DBSA. And I am with Priscilla Ridgway, Dr. Priscilla Ridgway, who's with the Yale Program for Recovery and Community Health. And Priscilla, thanks for having a conversation with me. Um,
1: You're very welcome.
0: Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, where does the whole idea of recovery come from? Let's start at the beginning.
1: Well I think um, people have always recovered and there are stories of recovery that go way back. A lot of the systems change that's come about over the course of time has come from people in recovery. And if you look way back to um, a book that's been in print since the 1700s, Percival's Narrative. He was one of the famous person that talked about his recovery, and he started the first peer support groups in England called the Alleged Friends Lunatics Association, (laughs) and tried to get um, systematic change so that people weren't abused in asylums. And if you look at the beginning of the mental health, the mental hygiene movement in America, that Clifford Beers recovered from um, what would be considered probably manic depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, and he was the founder, essentially the beginning of community mental health in America. So these stories are somewhat famous, but uh, it seems that people have always recovered, but we just forgot to listen to their stories and we kind of suppressed those stories for a long period of time. But The movement has really come about, the modern movement has come out of the disability rights and the survivor movement of people who have become leaders in that movement have talked about their recovery. And it's come out of long-term research which really shows that most people do recover over time. Um, Even in an era where we told people that they could never recover and they gave them no tools to recover. But the long-term research where you look over time, over decades, shows. There are ten world studies that commonly show that one-half to two-thirds of people do recover, so that research has had an impact. And then the outcomes of more um, recovery-oriented services, like supported employment, have shown very good outcomes. And even if you look just at the criteria of remission from symptoms, people have been given a distorted perspective because some of the research that's been done show that people have recovery rates similar to other disorders and that most people do achieve remission from their illness. We just have not trained professionals to be able to focus on that and quite to the contrary. We've had them focus on giving people the message that they could not recover. So this is good news that we're relearning.
0: Why, did, why do you think we lost our way? Why, why did we forget that knowledge that most
1: people do recover? Well, there's a history to this, and part of it, you know, my understanding is that part of it was the creating the nomenclature around the diagnostic and statistical manuals that some of the original originators of that, like Kraepelin, who was a psychiatrist in Germany, were really focused on long-term institutionalized populations, some of whom had... Things like terminal syphilis, and they had lumped all of schizophrenia in with people that were dying of really brain anthropy uh, from syphilis and so forth. They were looking at that as the group, people who had been institutionalized, and that's how they came up with these ideas. They weren't looking broadly at the people who had had, say, first breaks and gotten better, or who had limited and of course they were looking also at the legacy of institutionalization which can make people look very debilitated over time so a lot of the people that initiated these uh, diagnostic criteria really were looking at the the small percentage of people who remained very debilitated or who became very debilitated by institutionalization and then this became part of the lore and from DSM-1 until DSM-4, you could not recover, say, from schizophrenia because the diagnostic manual said if you did recover, then you were misdiagnosed to begin with. If you were diagnosed with schizophrenia and you did recover. So some of this was built in. We hid our successes and we didn't accurately even look. So we stopped looking and essentially we socially constructed these disorders so that you couldn't do better. And then trained physicians, psychiatrists, in a manner that led them to be hopeless, which allowed other people to be hopeless, and we created institutions that were based on that idea of hopelessness and long-term debility.
0: So how can we change um, how providers are, are trained to, what, what elements need to come into, say, their experiences and their education to change that?
1: Yeah, I think that you know what people have found is if you get mental health providers before they've become chronic, that if you begin with people when they first enter their profession and you give them um, arm them with the truth and also have them co-learn from people and there's just been some recent studies out of SAMHSA where they used um, or used they employed they engaged people in recovery. To co-educate prof- mental health professionals, and that kind of exposure to people who are in recovery and who are doing well with these disorders, of course, is you know it's this the idea of we are the evidence. And once people are side by side with people who have recovered, um, that story then soon changes. So um, some people say that in a paradigm shift such as this, it's generational; that you have, it takes the whole generation of the people who are ill-trained to kind of disappear off the planet before you can really root it out. But I think people are still being trained in the old model. So we have to get, um, bring people who are mental health consumers into the professions for one thing, and social work is doing that to a large degree, and also have people be trained in the recovery model and be exposed directly to people in recovery as part of their training, and then you get a whole new fresh perspective.
0: That fits what you're saying fits well with what I've heard about the best ways in order to eliminate stigma or lessen stigma is to expose people to people with mental illnesses. Yeah, really in enough. in
1: in bona fide social roles and in positive social circumstances, exposure is the way that stigma is reduced. Not through talk necessarily, but through one-to-one contact and exposure.
0: So what is the role of a provider today in a really recovery-oriented system? What should providers be doing? Do they have a role?
1: I think they do. You know, some people, and I just had dinner with a person who said this, that maybe it would be better if the whole recovery movement weren't engaged with the mental health system and kind of occurred outside of the formal helping system. But we see in some of the research I've done, for example, as part of the team on the What Helps, What Hinders study, that the formal helping system can actually hold back recovery in many people. So we can't just say, OK, you don't have any role. We're, you know, This is my job to do as a person in recovery. And in fact, there are many ways that um, staff of programs can, or professionals one-on-one who are doing mental health treatment and even psychiatrists can really foster recovery. And one way is by not imparting the prognosis of doom. Of really being clear from the beginning that recovery is expected and anticipated. There's some studies that are being done now that haven't been published yet that show that with people are given this message at the beginning, don't are not as depressed about this and not as debilitated. That if you give people the action. Message that we can be responsible for our recovery and that we will recover at the very beginning of um, being diagnosed. That's very prophylactic. It's like being inoculated, so the hopelessness does not occur. Another thing is is that there are effective treatments, like cognitive behavioral therapy, that we where we can be trained by a trained professional or DBT, for example, to use our own. Mind to help heal our brains, if it is a troubled brain. In many instances, people believe that. That there are wellness techniques, that there are ways to support people, like in supported employment or supported housing. And these are roles that people can do as long as they are willing to help people be the driver of their own recovery process and the facilitator. But people, a lot of people don't know that they have the right to be resilient. They don't know that they can rebound. And if mental health professionals would support people to join together and to learn those strengths that they have within them, how to use their strengths, how to employ their natural capacity for resilience. And these are things that most mental health professionals haven't been taught, but certainly they could be. And we're learning more and more about this every day. But I think for in a lot of cases, it's a matter of really helping people with basic needs If we have housing, for example, and are not homeless, we have much more of a chance of entering into the recovery process. So there are many things that formal systems and providers can do.
0: What would you say to the person, um, a provider, who is working with someone who themselves might not believe in recovery? You pointed out the fact that a lot of people have been beaten down uh, and, you know, so they now themselves really don't believe in recovery. Um, what would you say? Because I think many providers would get on board this bandwagon, but there may be some folks that resist this approach.
1: Yeah, I think uh, many people who have bought the idea that they are, excuse me, going to be debilitated or who have become debilitated don't see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. I think some people have said that um, you know at times it was the helper that carried the hope for them when they didn't have hope themselves so there are many ways to instill hope and you know many hope instilling strategies but certainly to keep reflecting back to the person and encourage encouragement that kind of sticking with people i think that you know directly linking them to other people in recovery you know we hear for example in Cancer Centers of America, that the first thing that a person did when they came to Cancer Centers of America was to uh, be introduced to someone who triumphed over a certain cancer that's exactly the cancer that they experienced. So one thing that could be done is to introduce people almost immediately to someone who has had say, <coughs> bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, who is doing well, who has you know, a high quality of life, and so that people get role models And to give them reading materials and link them to websites and to other people who are in recovery, that's, you know, one simple thing that people could do to not buy into that. And to just accept, you know, you may be feeling now that there is nothing that can be done or that there's very little, but there are practical things we can do together every day. And then also to give people some very simple tools and techniques, like through wellness recovery action planning or other resources, where people can see immediately that they can change. For example, one can change one's affect by dealing with one's breath or diet and so forth. Practical things that people can do, little small things, where they can change a bit of how they're feeling. So I think that there are many ways to kind of tease that out and begin a little bit.
0: You are one of the authors of a resource that a lot of people use called Pathways to Recovery. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is, how it came to be, and, and how it's helpful to people to regain recovery?
1: Sure. Pathways to Recovery came about when a number of us went to um, be trained in the wellness recovery action planning approach. And a number of people were aware that the um, program that I was in which is the Office of Mental Health Research and Training in the School of Social Welfare at the University of Kansas, had a strengths-oriented approach to case management. So we had been teaching case managers since the 80s in an NIMH-sponsored, basically, evidence-based practice called the strengths approach, which basically helps people to break down what they're facing, to look across domains in life, to begin to set goals. Create action plans. So it was very person-centered, very consumer-driven, very oriented towards reclaiming a full life in the community. So it was very recovery-oriented before recovery was sort of well-known, and it was very effective. There were 10 studies of the of the case management model, which showed that it's actually more effective, for example, than ACT. But um, politically, it didn't win that EBP contest. But it is very effective. And what we saw with the Wellness Recovery Action Plan was how powerful a tool is when you put it directly in the hands of the person experiencing the condition So or the challenge of mental health concerns. And we thought, well, what would it be like if we actually translated this into a self-help approach? And what we did was we went back to Kansas from Vermont, and we spent 18 months doing that. And we created a workbook which does have all of the elements of the strengths approach around goal setting and action planning, but it also contains a lot of information around hope and around what we can do um, for ourselves. And there's a lot of things in there like supercharging the journey about things that people found helpful, like visualization or affirmations. But also a lot of the practical wisdom about sort of the bumps and detours and Uh, rules of the road for recovery that weren't part of the strengths approach originally. And part of the book, the last part of the book, is about telling our own stories of recovery. So all of that evolved. And that part was about how important it is for us to share our success stories with one another and become vocal advocates for ourselves and to just be able to celebrate the fact that recovery is not only possible but real in our lives. So we took um, stories of success that had been written um, as part of people being trained as consumers to become providers, and we sprinkled within that, the book, the workbook, 30 of these stories, little brief excerpts from these stories, which a lot of people find that as part of this tool to be the most inspiring or the, their most favorite part of Pathways is the stories of people who have made the journey, who are out there on the road to recovery so we took this metaphor of the journey and then we illustrated it and we even very carefully picked the colors of the paper and the ink and so forth to make this very beautiful so it's the first uh... we also brought in hundreds of quotes of uplifting quotations both from mental health leaders mental you know consumer survivor leaders but also people like mahatma gandhi and so forth and so we inspired there, we have a lot of inspiring quotations in there. So it's probably, it's a beautiful, uplifting piece that gives people practical tools. And um, we now are having research being conducted, and some early findings are that it actually helps people not just with things like hope that we had hoped or a sense of self-efficacy that what I do toward my own recovery matters, but it actually is helping people to reduce their psychiatric symptoms. So we're very pleased with the early research on this and people are using pathways to recovery not just in the US but in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, in New Zealand, in Japan, in the Netherlands and we um, now uh, plow whatever resources come in from being able to distribute those books um, back into reprinting the books and And it's becoming a very popular resource. It's been out for some years now, four or five years. And people are discovering it, even though it's not on Amazon.com. People are discovering it and really using it. And a lot of people are, you know, I just read some research that came out recently in Oregon. And one woman's quote was, this is the first time I realized that having this condition was doable, workable, something that I could work with other people have said things like this is the first resource that helps me to realize that I am somebody so it has the effect of really giving people a sense of who they are which can sometimes be lost when we see our label as ourselves
0: Thank you very much Dr. Wordsworth, appreciate talking you. You're very welcome. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.